Now more than ever, the industry that fuels the world needs the right people to modernize and unify a global energy platform. The transformation is both digital and cultural. Join us as we explore strategies for success in the hyper-competitive war for talent here on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, hosted by the IBM North American Oil and Gas Team and Kit. Hello and welcome to the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast brought to you by Ericsson. For more information about our sponsor, Ericsson, please visit Ericsson on the web. You can find the links in the show notes as always. We have a great podcast today, really interesting guest, Brian, my co-host today. Who do we have? Hey, Jerry, how you doing? Today we have a great opportunity to talk to, I consider a close friend now and was a former client of mine, Eric Abacasis, who came to, I know, as the CIO of Schlumberger. Eric, why don't you give a little brief background on yourself and let's get this started. Sure. Hi, Brian. Hi, Jerry. Very happy to be here today. So a little bit of background. I was born as very much of a techie. (laughs) I started learning programming, my first programming language when I was 12. What language was that? I was basic. I learned Mm. that in a book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the summer of my 13, which put us in 1980 without disclosing too much, I spent the entire summer programming my first game in BASIC on this computer. So I was very nerdy. I get my way to college. Of course, that was obvious. I get into computer science. Got my PhD a few years after that. And then fast forward, I was working for a company that got acquired by Schlumberger in 2001. Do we need to call you doctor? Dr. Eric Abacus? Yeah, I never really applied that, but sometimes I do. (laughs) Oh, boy. All right. Well, Okay. Depending right. on the context. I mean, when I talk to NSF people, yes, I use, right. I use Dr. Right. Abikasis. <laughs> but here on the podcast, we can call you Eric. Is that all right? I think Eric's fine. Eric's okay. fine. Okay. <laughs> Jerry, I think you asked us to call you Dr. Lewis on this podcast, but it's not going to happen. So. <laughs> Dr. Strange, maybe. So to continue on the story and get into the topic of the day, I suppose after a couple of years being acquired by Schlumberger, I mean, my personal life and my career life took some sort of a turn. So I moved from being a doer, the architect, the guy with the hands on the keyboard to become more of a manager and a leader on the job side. And on the personal side, I moved out of the office and started realizing that there is a world out there and I started running the world. So I basically started running and then a few years after I started cycling and swimming and that became an absolute essential part of my life since then. But that turn happened around the year 2005, 2006. So it was a big shift in my life, work and private. So you started, did you say, so you started to run, you started to run and cycle in 2005. And so now we're going to be precise. Jerry said he started running the world. I thought I heard him say that too, but I just going to glance over that. But you know, I have Dr. Evil, maybe we've got here instead of Dr. Eric Abacus. Okay. (laughs) He literally Uh, meant he was running around the world and he's probably done that several times by now, actually. The truth is that the first motivation came from being outside and having the possibility to just put my running shoes and go running everywhere 
where I was. So when I say all around the world, there is indeed a little bit of that in the sense that I'm very happy that I've been to many places and I ran on the Great Wall of China. I ran in the Sequoia Forest in California. I ran in many, many places. And that's part of the joy that came through that. But before that, I was very much not at all in sport. So it was a big shift for me, moving from not doing anything and not being fit at all to start on that path of fitness and realize that I have a body and that if I take care of my body, my body can actually work well for me. So Eric, it sounds like there was some sort of inciting incident to go to sort of movie theory here. There was some inciting incident that occurred for you, and maybe it was this shift in your role at Schlumberger into more of a managerial role where you were traveling more. But what was it that made you all of a sudden change from being, let's say, not fit to sort of making fitness a primary goal of your life, it sounds like? Yeah, I'm still wondering whether it is indeed the job change that triggered the change in the sport, or if that's the other way around. And I have to admit that I don't really have a clear answer for that. But I think that it was a realization that I need to take care of myself and that being just stuck in the room for who knows how many hours and staying working late at night until 2 or 3 a.m. as my regular routine was definitely not going to cut it if I want to grow myself into balanced, well-being human. Yeah. And Eric, it's interesting because, you know, I got to know you probably starting back probably 2014, 2015 timeframe, right? And I think, you know, by that time, you certainly had already moved up into the executive ranks at Schlumberger. And I mentioned it in the opening of the podcast that I knew you as when you were the CIO at Schlumberger. And obviously, you know, prior to that, you were the president of SIS at Schlumberger. And both of those, and while you were the CIO, you were leading a massive business transformation that was going on at Schlumberger. So very demanding roles. But what I always found super interesting about you is you were able to be a very effective and very well-respected executive in the company, but you always, so ever since I've known you, even in those roles, had also a priority for your sport and a priority for making that a big part of who you were. But I never saw it really, you know, take away from who you were as an executive, actually, actually, I think enhanced who you were as an executive. Yeah, I think that what I discovered, and it went step by step. I mean, it didn't happen overnight. It was somewhat of a long journey. When we met Brian, I was already quite a few years into that journey of learning how to deal with sport. But indeed, what I experienced is that sport brought me the balance that I needed. It gave me the health boost that I needed to feel good in my body. And I think the resulting factor from that is it was also giving me the mental boost that I needed to feel good in my head. And I really strongly believe that it gave me a great ability to handle with calm, very difficult decision to come to the office energized and positive in a way that I hope it was translated into bringing energy in the team 
And the team was returning that energy back into a very positive way. So there was kind of a virtual circle that was created from the starting point of maintaining a balanced life and making sure that I was focusing enough attention to my body and to my mental health. And that was giving me the energy to address all the difficult challenges and situations that I was facing as an executive. So... Eric, that's really interesting. I think there seems to be some anecdotal evidence in your descriptions about, you know, some corollary between fitness or training or sport and some sort of efficacy in the office or productivity. But you kind of took it a different direction, right? You've now left and started your own company and somehow taken some of your findings, passions, conclusions from this period of your life that you've just described and put it into a new venture. Can you tell us a bit about that? And then maybe we could, at the end of that, relate it back to, for our listeners, kind of how it connects into the energy workforce of tomorrow and the demands on our teams and things of these days. So sorry to give you a multi-part question, but you know, I know we wanted to cover a bit of what you're doing now. And can you help us understand that a bit? Sure, sure. So I think it was mostly coming to a time for me to move to something else. I've always enjoyed the challenges and I think it was time for me to face different type of challenges. So I decided to move away from corporate America and experience and learn and go back to learning into the startup world. So I created a very small startup, Humango, where we are really focusing on building an AI coach that can help anyone from any starting point of physical ability to get on their own journey of fitness and fitness goal. And we're providing the training plan, the adaptive nature of the training plan, the feedback, the motivation for anyone and everyone to engage on their own journey and move towards fitness goals with the benefit that I've experienced myself in my career and in my life, generally speaking. So it was a way to be able to share that to a much larger public and yeah, use my technology expertise, use all what I've learned on my own sport career journey, and also bring all the learnings that I got as an executive from corporate America, from Schlumberger, whether it is in terms of taking tough decisions, facing difficult situations, learning how to manage my finance, and so on. So I brought all that together into a story that I think it was just the right thing and making sense at that time in my life and in my career. Eric, we were talking earlier, and I think you're about hitting third anniversary of that journey, right? Which seems like it's gone by really, really fast, probably more so for you than me, right? In terms of the journey you've been on, but certainly it's quite interesting. You've been away from the corporate world for a while, but in many ways, I still, I think, connected to your network. And obviously we interact in my role today with you quite a bit. And I think you still are very connected to sort of the way corporate cultures operate. But I'm curious, what have you gained, I think, in terms of, or how do you relate running a startup and the things that you do in the startup back towards your experience as being an executive in a corporation? And what are the main takeaways from that? So I would put that in two ways. I think one aspect is definitely... I've been a big proponent of Agile, as you know, when I was in the corporate world. 
And yeah, I was managing a very large organization and was promoting Agile. What I learned through this experience as a startup is living in direct connection this time with the absolute need of this agility to survive. So it was something that we had a lot of learnings. We were facing situations that were unexpected and without a very high level of agility would have been dead by now for sure. So I think that agility is definitely something that allowed us to continue being able to adapt to new situation, to pivot, to rethink the way you are assessing the situation. And those are things that are absolutely valid at a larger scale in corporate, in larger corporation. I only think that they sometimes hidden behind the other dimension like processes and the way we've been doing things and that is the way we are working and so on. So I believe that this opportunity in a startup gave me the chance of experiencing firsthand the value and the benefit of this agility. So that's definitely one big learning that I got from this experience in the last three years. And I think one thing that allowed us to still be there today. If I could just interject there, if you could go back now and be the CIO of Schlumberger again, or be really anyone hiring a team in any department, especially IT, but any department really, how would you incorporate the need for agility or this notion now that having the muscle to be flexible, to reset priority, to rethink the way you do things, not to be stuck in a previous commitment and to be agile, how would you incorporate that into maybe questions you'd ask of prospective employees in such a way that, you know, if you weren't agile certified, you still could tell that somebody had, you know, the characteristics or traits? Because I'm presuming that you think these are quite important now. I think he should ask you what you had for lunch today, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> to our listeners out there, we were doing a little prep and we were talking about, you know, the impact of health and wellness and Jerry's chowing down on a piece of pizza. So, you know, I think it's a good carbohydrate. Indicator. Hey, there was carbohydrates, there was protein and there, there was some whole everybody, grains. Everybody says you're the fit one. It's right. So, well, you know, for me, it's always been more state of mind. Yeah. So anyway, Eric, appreciate that, Brian, giving me a hard time here, but can you comment on that? Yeah. So the importance of being able to have the agility mode of thinking and being able to try to get away from your bias. I mean, at the end, I mean, when you are addressing any unknown situation, you're coming with your own bias, with your own feeling that maybe you know what the answer is or you know how to address it. And it could be like I described earlier, just the way we've been doing things, and that could be your bias. But I think that the learning I got and that what will be a completely applicable in the corporate America is that you really need to promote those value of being able to rethink the situation and really assess the fact and be able to continuously readjust. Is it, am I on the right course of actions? Is it the right approach to solve the problem and be able to continuously challenge yourself in this? And that is something that will be attached to some aspect of the personality of the person you can hire. But I also strongly believe that something I've experienced throughout my career as a leader that this is also something that you can promote as value. 
I mean, there is so much that is driven by who is the leader and what are the values that you choose to promote and how your team is going to embrace these value. I mean, no matter what, with more or less resistance, depending on who they are as a starting point, but they will embrace those values if you're promoting them as a leader and there are things that they can relate to to a certain extent. So I think they have to be able to relate to it, but then you also have to take your responsibility as a leader to promote those values and to create a space where it's okay to maybe realize that you were wrong doing something and maybe there is another way. If you're not allowing the mistake, if you say mistake is not acceptable in my organization, then you're kind of stopping the ability to reassess if we were doing the right thing. Yeah, Eric, it's really interesting. I mean, when I listen to you talk about the things that you learned about in running a startup the last three years, I couldn't help but sort of connect the dots to, I think, a lot of, you know, the customers that Jerry and our team work with, as well as, you know, your former endeavors at Slumbershade, the industry is really having to reorientate themselves in a lot of areas, right? A lot of new areas when we talk about energy transition and new technologies and new innovations, it is probably very much a fail fast mentality if you want to survive and navigate the turn into where the industry is going. I think the other thing that is maybe really, you know, relevant to talk about is I think a lot of the oil and gas industry customers are having to actually go after different types of talent, maybe a different generation of talent in the marketplace that's a little bit out of their comfort zone, right? And I think what you spoke a lot about being out of your comfort zone and having to, you know, really think outside the box on a few things and, you know, and kind of tying back to, you know, our conversation around, you know, wellness, you know, I think a lot of the employees that the industry, you know, the oil and gas industry is seeking is probably now a new generation, right? A new workforce that is maybe much more focused now on having good work-life balance, right? And, you know, will work hard, but also will want an aspect of their life where they can sort of punch out and take care of themselves. And so, you know, I think when you go out and you're looking at talent in the marketplace, you kind of have to maybe differently than what the hiring dimension looked like 10 years ago. And, you know, in some of the large integrated players, there may be a totally different, you know, attribute set that needs to be thought about in terms of when you and how you recruit and the type of people that you recruit and the values that you look for. And maybe looking for those hints or clues of agility, those hints or clues of balance, those hints and clues of thinking outside the box. So, you know, it's interesting. I mean, what you've gone through on this journey, I think is so representative of the journey that a lot of our clients are going through today. Yeah, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Definitely those different type of profile are the kind of people that you really want to recruit to be able to face the type of challenges that we are facing today around the world. I think that the balance, I mean, you touched on the balance and work-life balance. i would like to extend a little bit on that because I believe that in my own experience at Schlumberger, in my own experience at Humango and the people I've been working with, what you need is the people that will give their best, but at the same time, they will respect themselves and respect others. And in that sense, it's not necessarily the guy or the lady that's going to work always 15 hours a day that's going to be the most 
productive person in your team. You may prefer the one that's going to work maybe eight or 10 hours. He or she will be ready to work the 15 hours when we need to, and there will always be time where we need to have that. But the rest of the time, they will make sure that they maintain their balance. They maintain an equilibrium in a way that when they come and they work there eight to 10 hours a day, they work these hours very effectively. And this notion of a unit of productivity per unit of time is something that we definitely have to reconsider. And again, in the example of the startup and Really, the startup gives you the opportunity to be connected to the direct life of what everything is happening. It's so important to understand that the productivity is not measured in the number of hours, but in the number of units of time multiplied by the unit of productivity. And that is related to the balance of the people and how much they can produce. Yeah, that's a super interesting point. And I'm hearing an accent Eric, I think it may be French, but do you think the French have always been on to this idea of work-life balance and 35 hours a week all of a sudden now becomes the new 60 hours a week? And we were all just like fooled by that here in the US thinking we needed to work 100 hours a week to be productive. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that relates to French or not. Okay, all right. <laughs> but, but clearly the thing is, to find your own balance and to find your own flexibility. I mean, one thing that I experienced in the startup, which definitely the environment was more conducive to that, is that I had total flexibility on my time. So I was able to work the same way on a Sunday, on a Saturday, or any day of the week. And the total amount of hours that I'm working is, I mean, on a startup, probably more than what I used to. But the flexibility that I'm gaining is offering me a feeling that I feel much more balanced in my work-life balance than I used to, even though I probably work 20-30% hours more during the week. That's interesting because it's not only the philosophy of agility, but the physical implementation of agility that you're hinting at, which is if we don't constrain ourselves to this notion of you know, a 40 hour work week or, you know, five boxes of eight hours or four of 10, but rather we allow ourselves to ebb and flow into the work as our life permits, we can be more productive perhaps. And I think that's what you're hinting at. And I, I think naturally evolve in that way too. Like I don't ever really turn off, but I don't ever feel like it's a drag not to turn off because I don't think I overcommit at least from time to time on any one day. Yeah, I guess that one thing is that you have to impose a certain rigor because you need this time off. You need to be able to get out of your desk and whether it is to spend time with the family, is whether it is to go for a run or walk with the dogs, as you mentioned earlier, Brian. I think those moments are as important to your overall quality of life and quality of work and recognizing that and accepting that is allowing you to get to a different approach to the way you're managing your time. And then the flexibility is becoming reality because you are realizing that taking a time off is not just giving up on the work, is actually re-energizing yourself so you can be more productive. I mean, how many times I had to give up on a prop solving a problem on a late evening only to find the solution in front of my eyes in the morning 
And that was the result of allowing myself to take a break away from work and come back. And I could have muscled through and wasted a lot of energy, maybe achieve an uh, underperforming goal in that sense and being exhausted. Where on the other hand, if I take the break and I resource myself through family time, through sport time, and then come back to the problem, the problem might be solved in a more elegant way and without that much waste. And how many times, I mean, I'm sure we all nodding our heads here, even though the audience can't see it. How many times do you solve those complex problems while you're on the run, while you're walking the dog, right? While you're taking the break? I mean, that happens to me all the time, right? I mean, there's so many times I can be so focused on something and I step away and just sort of, you know, change my orientation and the approach comes to me in terms of how to solve the complex problem. It's interesting. We kind of danced around this concept of flexibility a little bit. And we did an earlier session on sort of the return to work. And I certainly don't want to spend, you know, flip this whole podcast towards the return to work discussion because it is, you know, probably maybe an overplayed topic in a lot of ways. However, you know, I think about the platform that your company is building, Eric, and I've seen it just in your own employee base. I mean, you and I have talked about it, right? You know, how you've sort of created a little bit of community in that your employees now are engaging on the platform also with your customers in terms of advancing their health and wellness and their sport. And I think as companies think about how they are going to solve the dilemma of providing the flexibility and the work where you want and when you want to, you know, orientation to the employees. So I think that's what the employees are ultimately demanding. You still need some aspects or some things to entice them with in terms of, I think, being part of something, being part of a community. And I think that's a different role, but a really relevant role where solutions like Human Go can play for corporations. Yeah, so you're touching on quite a few topics. I would like to highlight one interesting fact, I believe, about Humango. And so you mentioned, yeah, we were created three years ago. And if you go three years back, actually it was December 19. So December 19 was not long before March 2020. And I guess everybody remember March 2020 being a turning point in our life in many ways. So we started a company at a time where COVID was just, creating such an impact on every aspect of our life and professional life and personal life. So we created a company that is completely distributed. It's a small company. I mean, we are 12 people, almost pretty much all around the globe. We managed to avoid too much of a spread across Asia time zone, but pretty much everything else is in there. And I was very much reluctant to start with to create a startup, you need to create a culture, you need to create a sense of purpose around people that are meeting every day at work. And now we're going to be completely distributed. And the result of that is that we've been able, maybe not intentionally, I mean, that was just forced by the time, but we created a situation where there is a sense of purpose. There is, I believe, a very strong company culture, a very strong sense of belonging that exists between those employees that for many of them never met physically. So that is an interesting findings. And I know it's not always easy to replicate that at scale. But I think that it's important to look at that aspect and see if you're creating enough bound 
an enough sense of identity within a reasonably sized unit, whether it is 10, 15, 20, 30 people, and you build your organization as an assembly of this block, you can add a level of flexibility in your workforce that maybe we're not always contemplating. And I know that, I mean, the topic, as you said, of the workforce and return to work is a big topic these days. But I really would like to stress the fact that there is some proof point, uh, some proof points that are demonstrating that with the right ingredient, you can create a company culture and a strong bond between employees that are distributed across the world. So I think that's an important one. We are coming to the end of the conversation. We've got to try to bring some things home. One thing that just occurred to me in your discussion there was it's relatively easy, let's say, in a performance regime like running or training to measure your performance, right? You know that you went faster or you lifted more or something like that. And so your productivity is quite easy to measure. But how do you, just thinking about all your experience, both with your startup, Mango, and with Schlumberger and, and other companies you've worked for, in an agile world where you're promoting flexibility and you've just talked about how you might conceive of a flexibly oriented workforce comprised of small units that each can have an identity and a culture and summing that up can have a corporate culture, which I think is really wise for us to all think about. How do you recommend that our clients, that our listeners consider and measure productivity of their employees when it always, when is it always so obvious how to measure that productivity and what the impact of flexibility or not flexibility would be? Maybe that's a good closing question, an easy one for you. <laughs> oh, very, very easy. Thank you, Jerry, for that question. <laughs> I've been a firm believer at the time I was working for Schlumberger, and I don't think that changed too much for me through this experience at Humango, that you still need to be able to establish some measure of your performance. I mean, you say, yeah, it's easy for the run, yeah, it's easy. Definitely. You have some absolute measure, whether it is your heart rate, your efficiency, your, your power and so on. But at the end of the day, I mean, for work, you still need to measure the unit of production. And to say in an agile environment, I mean, in an agile environment, and nothing's preventing you from having all your task and stories into your sprint to talk scrum language and having points attached to that and you're measuring the productivity there is an acceptance of the uncertainty this is not absolute exact science but the truth is that the ballpark figure that it's going to give you is definitely sufficient so if you are able to measure the productivity of your team in terms of the number of points that will be produced by a unit of time or by sprint or whatever is what you're measuring on, it's going to give you a fairly good indication, even in an agile environment with all the flexibility of, are you getting the productivity you are expecting from your team? Mm. Even in non-traditionally scrum-oriented domains like, say, HR, you create stories, you write epics, you use backlogs, you manage tasks, you create PBIs, whatever it is. I strongly believe that, yeah, I'm still a firm believer of Scrum type of approach in many different environments. And I mean, there have been some proof points 
in many aspects far beyond software development that Scrum could be applied. I mean, the story of the name escaped my mind right now. There was the General McChrystal. Yeah. And the strategy implemented, I mean, it's very much Scrum-like. I mean, what it did was very much Scrum-like, and he applied that to fight in Iraq against the insurrection. And so it was. if we can do that in that kind of context, yeah, I have no doubt that you can do that in many contexts, such as HR and others. Well, where could our listeners learn more about Humango and what it does and perhaps take a look at what you're doing firsthand, Eric, since you've come on the show, we'd love for you to tell our listeners how to reach you and how to reach Humango. So Humango, humango.ai, that's the first place to go. That's our website. From there, you can understand a little more about the value proposition. But really, everything is based on the experience of how sport can change your life. And I believe that it has also a very strong play in the corporate where I think that paying attention to the balance, to health, making sure that you deliver something that will adapt to all your employees, whatever is their starting point of fitness, whether they are already people running marathon like at the breakfast, or whether they are people that I cannot imagine today running a five for 5K. I think that's the value proposition. We're proposing a virtual coach that will adapt to uh, individualized level of fitness and will help you achieve your goal. And in doing that, my own experience of how it impacted my career and how it impacted the overall energy in the system that I was leading in the teams, I believe that there is a huge potential for corporation to focus more on the health and fitness of their employees and provide them the tool to follow their own individualized path. At the same time, we are providing all the tools to create the motivation, to create the group training. So whether you want to prepare your workforce to train for an MS-150 from Austin, Houston, whether it is to send a team for running the Houston Marathon, or whether it is to get some of your folks to get for a 5K family run and promote those values, I think that that's what we believe is going to make an impact and a change in your workforce. Wow. So you may go to AI. Yeah, fascinating. Brian, any closing remarks before I call us off here? Eric, thank you for coming on today. I think it was a great discussion. And Jerry, I want you to eat a couple more pizzas and then meet me in the parking lot for a 100-yard sprint, okay? Hey, listen, I'm going to go get myself a coach at Humango.ai, and I'm going to dominate because it's going to tell me what to do to beat you. So, well, maybe it's not so prescriptive, Eric, but we'll go check it out. The the algorithm doesn't have to be too good at that to do that. But no, great discussion, Eric. Thanks for the time. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, please check out the show notes. Go visit Eric's website and check out humango.ai offerings. And we look forward to hearing from you about that. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Thanks to our sponsor and have a great day. Join us again next week on the Energy Workforce of Tomorrow podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.